So glad you guys decided to come out. Welcome to our online audience. You guys are awesome. So uh, I've been really pumped, actually, to share this message because in general, like the, um, you know, the Genesis account, the creation account, just inspires so many fun, uh, you know, ideas and thoughts, and it just gets my imagination stirred up, you know, to think about um, what the Garden of Eden was like, you know, what creation was like at the beginning, what the human beings were like, you know. Like, I just, we assume that they look like us, but what, did, what if they didn't, you know? What if they were significantly larger, for instance, you know? Like, or, you know, maybe, like, I think about being out in the sun all the time, naked, you know? Like, and not getting sunburned, which means, like, either their skin was, like, very, very, very dark, maybe, or they were covered in hair, you know? <laughs> I don't know. It's fun to imagine. Uh, <laughs> like, just imagine a human head to toe covered in hair, <laughs> It's possible, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> what, 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 what was it like to like walk and talk with God? You know, literally like face to face with God. You know, um, what did what did Adam and you know Eve know? Like when they were created, were they like babies that you know, like God just had to teach them everything, or did God create them just with their minds completely filled with with like knowledge? You know, were they like incredibly wise and smart? You know. Um, it's fun to think about, but obviously the Bible leaves most of that to our imagination. Um, but we do get we do get pictures of what uh, God was like and what we were designed to be like. So uh, this is the second week in our six week sermon series, um, Imago Dei, Image of God, and this whole series is going to be in Genesis one through three, just kind of talking about this creation story. And this morning it's, we're going to talk about what it means to be made in God's image. You are made in God's image. Just as you are with whatever junk you brought in with you this morning, you are made in the image of God. God loves his creation. He, he loves the mountains and the rivers and, you know, the lakes, and he loves the vast kaleidoscope of animal life, but he loves you more. He said all that stuff was good, but of you, he said, very good. So last week, Amanda shared um, that, you know, we know who we are when we know who God is. God made us in his image, and thus to be human is to be like God. The, the more or less that we are like God, the more or less that we are in touch with what it even means to be human. We learned that our value, um, our value comes from God, and no one can take it away from us. Nobody. God's word is final. Um, you know, on the, we, we learned that on the seventh, you know, like God resting on the seventh day in the creation story is an, just an unequivocal declaration that God is king over his creation. He is at rest. His, his dominion is established. We, we, we learned that he is one. He is king. He is independent of us. Um, and he's, you know, like he spoke and caused things to exist. His power is absolute. And yet he is uncorrupted by it. He is good. Like, he is the substance of good. Goodness is not an external quality that he just has more of. He is goodness itself. And he made you in his image. That's where we're going to pick it up this morning. Um, what does it mean that we are made in God's image? And, and furthermore, um, what happened to that image when sin entered the world? What did we have, and, and then what did we lose at the fall? Um, and, that, and that, that's what we're going to explore this morning. And where I hope to arrive um, 
through, through, through all this is to a place of deeper appreciation for just how bad the fall really was. Um, I want to make space for us to just sit in, in, in the brokenness of the world um, and sit in our own brokenness. And I, and I want to hold up, you know, like what God meant for us, the beautiful thing that God meant for us versus, you know, the, what Adam chose for us and just let it weigh us down. And then I just want to leave you there. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. Um, the, the, point, the point of it is to stir up desire in our hearts, right? Everything that we lost in the fall is what we stand to regain in Jesus. And if you were around for our, like, what, is, uh, what the gospel is series, you know that the gospel is not just about uh, the forgiveness of our sins so that we can go to heaven when we die. It's about God restoring everything. Uh, it's about God undoing all of the curses that entered the world through sin at the fall. So we need to learn just how bad the fall is to build up our longing for it to be undone under Jesus in the future and, of course, in the present, in and through our lives. I think, I think most of us think that our desires are, are, you know, kind of maybe too strong as it is, but that's not true. Our desires are too weak. We so easily settle for, you know, for money and achievements and, you know, success and drink and sex and, you know, status and stuff, but we are far too easily satisfied. I, wanna, I want us to try to cultivate this morning a desire that is too strong to settle for anything less than what God wants for us and what God wants for the people in our lives. So, image of God. Uh, if you want to pull up Genesis uh, 1, 26 on your device, we'll get started there. Um, <clears throat> I just want to reiterate, though, before we get, get to the passage, just what Amanda shared last week, that, that the story that we find in Genesis is no different than any other passage of Scripture in the whole Bible. Um, the author wrote, wrote the text with an intended meaning. It's written with an intended audience, and it is written in a cultural and historical context. Um, and we learned last week that that people, that the audience that the author was writing to, and that context was the nation of Israel at the time of the Exodus. Exodus from, from Egypt. Um, the story of creation and human, ex- and human history had been carried on through like oral tradition, uh, and, and up until that point in, in the Exodus, or at the time of the Exodus, Moses, or perhaps one of his contemporaries, um, took a selection of those stories that had been preserved and wrote them down to communicate to the nation of Israel who God is and who they are. Because you got to remember that at this point in Israel's history, they have been in Egypt for like 400 years in, in, in slavery. <clears throat> they had been fully assimilated into uh, Egypt's pagan polytheistic culture. Any notions that they, or knowledge that they had about God, Yahweh, their God, was in the context of a pagan pantheon of gods. He was just one of hundreds. And they worshipped Yahweh, but they also worshipped these other gods um, in the form of idols that lived in temples. Um, so the creation account found in Genesis, it, you know, was meant to communicate to Israel in no uncertain terms that Yahweh alone was responsible for creation. He alone is God and there is no other. The earth is his temple. The entire earth is God's temple and he built it to live together with his people. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books in the Bible, um, were all written as one big collection called the Pentateuch or the Torah, 
um, by Moses or, again, possibly a contemporary of his. Um, and it was meant to be the very life of God. Uh, belief and obedience to the Torah was what would set God's people apart uh, as holy unto the Lord, different from all the nations around them. They were to be God's special possession. Um, and from the very first verse of that Torah, um, Moses had to make it clear that in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. Yahweh, not Baal, not Ashtoreth, not Molech. Yahweh alone is God, and there is no other. He sets their value. You know, he determines uh, what is good and what is evil, and he made them in his own image. Um, And it was so important for the people of God to understand this about themselves that Moses gave them actually two accounts of the creation of the humans, one in chapter one and the other in chapter two. And we're going to look at both this morning, but um, I I, I just want to remind you again that that the text, it means what the author intended it to mean. And so you're going to be tempted to try to look for answers to a bunch of other questions that Moses wasn't trying to answer. You know, the text is, it means what it means. And so you're going to be tempted to look at it and be like, was it a literal seven days? Or was it like a significantly longer period of time? You know, did, what was the exact order of the created things? You know, and, and what were they like? You know, how long were Adam and Eve in the garden before sin happened? And my personal favorite, why... Uh, is Eve not startled by the fact that a snake is talking to her, right? You know, um, and, it, and you're welcome to speculate all you want um, about the answers to those questions, but just remember, Genesis was not written to answer those questions. It was written to communicate who God is and who his people are, who the humans are. So let's jump right in, okay? So Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on the earth, and all the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish of the sea, um, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Okay, so the first thing that I want to point out um, from the text here is this us language that we find. Um, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Now, if you recall last week, uh, Amanda spent a lot of time, you know, explaining how God needed Israel to know that he alone was God. He is singular. He's not one among many. Um, He alone is God. Um, so, So, like, it, it kind of makes it a little bit confusing. Like, why would God introduce this us language if it's so important for, you know, for uh, the people of Israel to understand God as, as singular? Well, we, of course, with like, the benefit of the whole rest of the Bible, understand that God is, exists in a trinity. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Each person is distinct from the others. Each person is fully God, and yet there is only one God. Um, so we might surmise from that that, you know, maybe God was trying, to, with this us language, he's trying to communicate to the nation of Israel that he is a trinity. Um, but I, I kind of don't think that's the case. I mean, that's possible, possible that that's what he was up to, but that's a pretty advanced understanding of, of God, right? And Moses is just trying to communicate the very, very most basic, um, you know, fundamental knowledge about God. So what I think 
Israel needed to know about their God from this us language is that God is relational. He is one, but he exists in perfect relationship with himself. God was not lonely. He didn't need companions. You know, that wasn't, there was no, no motivation of need that, that motivated God to create the human beings or anything else. He created human beings in the image of his own relational satisfaction. So, so here's what I want you to take from that, that you were made for relationship with God. Being made in the image of God means that you are made in the image of a relational God for relationship with God. You were designed by God to be like God in that you have the capacity to give and receive love from God. God made the whole earth and and everything in it to be like, you know, the temple where he lives and rules over all of the creation. And he filled it with perfectly ordered things, birds for the air and fish for the sea. But none of that stuff, none of the rest of the creation had the capacity for the mutual giving and receiving of love. So God made the man and the woman in his own image to be with him in his temple, earth, in his presence to know him and to enjoy him forever. A people made for God's presence inhabiting the same heaven-earth place that God inhabits. So in chapter one, we, we see both the man and the woman were created together in for relationship with God. They were both made in his image absolutely equal in their capacity to love and receive love from God. And they, and, and, and they were absolutely equal in their purpose in God's creation. Um, but that, that's kind of the big zoomed out view let, we get a, actually kind of a little bit, a little bit sharper view in, in chapter 2. So let's take a look at that. This is chapter 2, uh, 18, starting in verse 18. Uh, then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So in, in, this, in the second chapter, the second view, we see the man, you know, the man created and the man and the woman created at separate instances. The man first, and, and it was said, God said, it's not good for this man to be alone. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, uh, this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So in, in our broad kind of big picture chapter one view, made in the image of God means that we were made for relationship with God, to be with God in his presence. But if we drill deeper, made in the image of God uh, in chapter two also means that we were made for relationship with each other. We were made to be in relationship with those that are like us. So, and, and, and then, you know, at least in the married, the married uh, analogy, to from the overflow of that mutual love produce even more life, just like God from the overflow of his love produced life. That isn't to say that, you know, marriage is the only, you know, uh, image-bearing, you know, institution. We together as the church, you know, human to human loving each other is the same image-bearing status, loving and honoring each other. But certainly in the marriage instance, um, it's a picture of, of God's relational nature. And I love that the humans were, were naked in this, in this whole scenario. They had nothing to hide from each other. 
They had nothing to um, protect. They, they had no need to protect themselves from anything. You know, it, and it wasn't just that they had no shame. It was that they had nothing to be ashamed of. You know, it, it, I, I was trying to think of like something that's close to that in our society. And I, I, I think about like going to the beach. I really enjoy going to the beach, especially if it's the ocean and you can see the big waves and stuff. Um, I love it because it's pretty and it's, you know, it's, it's kind of serene, but it's also just a very interesting social dynamic. Like where else in your life can hundreds of people gather together basically in their underwear and like swim and, you know, lie around on the ground together outside, you know? It's just so weird, you know? But, and we all just accept it, you know? It's just a socially accepted reality. This is okay, you know? Uh, like... <laughs> I don't know. It just gets me. But, so, but I, I enjoy going to the beach just to observe the oddity of it all, but also to just be out in the sun. But it takes me about like maybe five minutes of my you know, body exposed to the sun to you know, have a painful reminder that the sun is trying to kill me. You know? uh, but, but that wasn't the case for, for Adam and Eve. You know, they, they had no need to protect themselves from anything. There was nothing and no one in you know, creation that was trying to harm them. You know, except, of course, for the, for the serpent, but we'll get to that later. They were safe with each other and, and, and with God relationally. You know, and with God as like the absolute ruler over the creation, they were safe in the world. You know, the, the, the only thing in all of creation that exercised any free will was the humans, right? There were no thorns to scratch their bare legs. There, you know, was nothing to harm them. The only thing that came out of the ground was what God or the humans caused to grow. And that leads, that leads up to our, our next point. You were made in the image of a relational God to be together with God in his presence, to be fearlessly and unabashedly intimate with God and with each other. And, and this is what it means to be human. So let's go back to our text and take another look. Genesis uh, 1, picking up in 26 again. So God uh, made human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Uh, so we saw last week, you know, that, that, that God is king over his creation. You know, we saw him rest on the seventh day, like at peace with the world. All is right. He is reigning over everything. So when he made human beings in his image, naturally we were designed to rule just like God. God's a ruler. God is a king and we were meant to be his, you know, uh, representation, his, his representatives to rule on his behalf in the world. The earth itself and all the creatures in it were designed to recognize the man's rule. It was designed to respond to humanity's rule um, in abundance, right? So let's take a closer look in chapter two in our, in our, second, our second creation account. Um, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils and the man became a living person. Then the Lord God planted a garden in, the, in Eden in the east and there he placed the man he had made. Now, this is where it gets even better. Like, remember that Moses, who, who Moses is writing to here. He's writing to a paganized nation of Israel who are accustomed to believing that idols are divine, like idols are gods. Um, and this is the language he chooses to describe his humanity. He made 
a man from the dirt. He made the figure of a man from the dirt and he breathed on it and it came to life. Here's what's crazy. This language would have been immediately recognizable to the audience as being like an idol craftsman language. In Hebrew, the word used here um, for image in the image of God is is a super common word in in the Old Testament. And it's almost always translated as idol. Like this translation of image was a, you know, a deliberate, like it's almost like idol in every other instance is almost always negative. Like Israel, you know, prostituting themselves to idols and worshiping pagan idols. It's a a very negative connotation. So the translators deliberately use this word image to sort of differentiate, like this is good and those are bad, but it's the same word, idol. In ancient Near Eastern culture, when a craftsman would set out to create an idol, they would take the clay or the metal or the wood or whatever and fashion it into the image or likeness of that god. And then when the idol was finished, the craftsman would breathe on the idol. And it was, it was believed that at that moment, the life of that god would animate the idol. Such that if you, uh, if you sacrificed to it or if you prayed to it, it was the same as sacrificing or praying to the God itself. You know, it's, it's, not that that, it's not that the idol is the actual God, but the life of that God is in it, right? So, so picture this. If you're, if you're the, the audience, the original audience for this, you're, you've been released from Egypt and slavery, you know, you, you were a slave. Your parents were slaves. Your grandparents were slaves. You've never known anything but slavery. And out of nowhere, this God, Yahweh, has demolished the, the kingdom that has held you and your, and your you know, people for generations. God has just de- demolished them. And, and he, he did all these signs and wonders. And, and he parted the entire Red Sea so that you could walk through safely. And now you're being told that this same terrifyingly powerful God that you were made in his image. There's no other God but him and the entire world is his temple and the idol that he placed in his temple to represent his image is you. Is that crazy or what? Like you gotta imagine the significance of this to God's people living in, in slavery. The only person in ancient culture that was said to be the image of God was like the emperor, you know, Pharaoh or, you know, the, the king, whoever's, whoever's the highest in the land, that's, that's the only person who can claim to be the image of God. And yet, th- these people are being told, you're on that same level, and so is everybody else. Like, wow, th- you know, this is incredible. So just in case you're getting nervous, I'm not saying that, that you know, people are gods or that God made, made the people to be gods. That's not what it means that, that we're his idol. What I am saying, though, is that God made humanity in his own image and that we were meant to live forever because we have God's life in us. Like, to, you know, when the humans were, you know, bringing new life uh, into the world without pain or danger, it was because they had God's life in them. They were able to be in directly in God's presence and his glory was no threat to them at all because they were being sustained by God's life. Their rule in the world was made effective in the world because they had God's life in them. So that's what it, that's what it meant to be human for them. It was made for relationship with God, made for relationship with each other, and they were made to rule the creation. And that, and that you know, rulership looked like work. 
like hard work. But not work like we think of it. Think of it more like the work that it takes to, you know, take care of your beloved pet. You know, the taking it for walks or feeding it or, you know, cleaning out its litter box or whatever. I'm not really much of a pet person. I don't have any pets and I particularly don't like dogs. Um, but some people do like dogs and think, think that they're wonderful. And for them, like, it just looks like a bunch of work for me. Like, I don't want to clean up your feces, you know, <laughs> out of the yard. Like, but, but to a dog lover, it's like there's joy in it. There's joy taking, you know, taking the dog for walks and joy feeding it and joy, you know, watching it play in the yard. And, you know, think of it like that. That's what this work is like. Or think of it like, you know, planting flowers in, in your, you know, plant beds in the springtime and, you know, cultivating your lawn and watching it, you know, watching the plants grow and throughout the season or grow, you know, planting a garden and watching the food come up, you know. Um, this is what work was like, you know, or think of it like, you know, that project motorcycle or Jeep that you've got in the garage and you stay up late working on it and, and, because it's like you've got this image in your mind. You picture the possibilities, you know, you, you have this whole scene of you climbing rocks, you know, with your Jeep and the rumble of the motor and the, you know, all this stuff. Like you can, you picture the joy it's going to bring you, how it's going to make you feel, how it's going to smell, how it's going to, you know, taste, how, you know, you, you get, you get this vision for it and then you make it happen, you know, with the, with your work, with your hands, you plant or you build or you wrench or you, you know, you stand at the door with the leash, you know, in your hand, ready to go for a walk as the dog is jumping for joy and anticipation. I can't wait to go on this walk with you. Like that forever. Endless joy in our work, our hard work. That's what you were made for. His people, in his presence, in his place, fulfilling his purpose with joy at every day. More joy, more joy. You were made in the image of a relational God, built to know God and enjoy him forever in perfect relationship with him and with each other. You were made as his idol, the living, breathing representation of God in the world who is king. You were made to work out his rule on his behalf, bringing life and harmony and justice and joy into his creation. This is the fingerprint on every single person in the world. But that's not how we experience life, is it? Like in, cha- in you know, Genesis you know, chapter one and two, you know, we see that we were made for relationship with God, we were made for relationship with each other, and we were made to work out his rule uh, in, in the world. But we don't live in a Genesis one and two world. We live in a Genesis three world where sin has, and death have invaded the creation and ruined everything, poisoned everything. In order for this whole thing to work, the humans had to have a choice. They had to be given a free will to choose. You know, to, to, in order to love at all, you know, free will is demanded. You know, love that's not volunteered is not love at all if it's forced. They had to be able to choose to be ruled by God. And, and they were basically allowed to do anything that they wanted in the creation except decide for themselves what is good and what is evil. God reserved that privilege for himself. So the choice to eat the fruit of the knowledge of of good and evil was a choice to doubt God's good intentions for them and to chart out their own course based on what they thought was good and right. It was a choice to reject dependency on God. 
And they, and they had the authority, you know, they had the free will to make that choice, but they didn't have the power or the agency to hold creation accountable to their choice. They forfeited that. So that the choice to be independent came with a very steep price tag. Let's look at Genesis 3. Uh, then he said to the woman, this is uh, cha- uh, chapter 3, verse 16. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy. In, and in pain, you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. When you reject God's rule, you forfeit the blessings that come with it. The, 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 when you reject dependency on God, you reject the ceaseless flow of blessings that come from him. So what we see in, in this curse is it's not just an arbitrary punishment that God just thought up, you know. This is the reversal of the blessings that God had created, the special blessings that he created his human beings to have. This is the reversal of that. It's what happens when you cut off the flow of God's continuous blessing. The woman was named Eve, you know, because she would be the mother of all the living. But now the exercise of that blessing, the exercise of that mothering came with great danger. And, in, and indeed, up until the Industrial Revolution, the number one cause of death for women and severe injury was childbirth, you know? And, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. See, when God is king, the, the humans are equal, you know? Everyone's looking to him. He is in charge. It would be unthinkable for the man to do anything that wasn't in the best interests of the woman and vice versa, because to do so would be to disobey God. But when the humans decide to rule themselves and decide for themselves what's good and evil, suddenly the possibility exists that the man might decide that something's good for him that's not good for the woman. And, oh, by the way, he's bigger and stronger, you know? Uh, who will be the arbiter, you know? If the humans are, are deciding to rule themselves, who of the humans is in charge? They still, of course, love each other and long for each other, but they now have the capacity to hurt each other. The man, you know, the man is bigger and stronger, so the woman can't physically overpower him. Um, but he's no longer acting on, exclusively on, her, on God's, God's interests for her. He's acting on his own interests, what's good in his own sight. So she can't control him. And, you know, her ability to bring life into the world, you know, is now comes at the expense of her own body. And the safety and equality that she enjoyed under God's rule has now given way to subjugation under man's rule. This is her blessing turned upside down. What about the man? Picking up in 17, it says, um, and to the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life, you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will, you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. God made Adam to care for the garden, to care for the world. He was a farmer. He was made to cultivate the land, to exercise his creativity and authority in the world to cause the earth to flourish. And until the fall, the earth only produced what God or the humans planted and caused to grow. And the earth responded to God's authority in the man, God's sovereignty in the man, by producing in abundance what he desired. The man's work was his joy. So we see in the man's curse that creation no longer responds 
to his authority because he has abdicated it. Creation itself has turned on the man and itself. Like up until this point in creation, everything was vegetarian. The plants were given as food for the animals, as food for the people. There was no violence in nature at all. And now the plants are becoming poisonous. You know, animals are eating each other. The man chose death and death entered into all of creation. Now when the man plants food, he has no control whatsoever of what will grow up. He can do his best, but the earth might produce only death and he is at the mercy of it now. So you see the curse of the man or the reversal of the man's blessing is not that he has to work. He was made for work. Work was his joy. The curse is fruitless work. By the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. Um, there's a guy named Daniel Fleming, a professor at New York University, and he wrote an article about this phrase, by the sweat of your brow. Uh, and he demonstrates in the, uh, in the article that this, this phrase is actually like a Near Eastern, ancient Near Eastern idiom. An idiom is like a phrase that doesn't, that means something, but not necessarily what it sounds like. So if you, you know, think of the phrase, get off your high horse, you know, that implied is that, you know, you're being proud, stop being proud. It doesn't have, actually have anything to do with being on a horse, right? This is like that. Um, it, it's not referring to like hard work. It's referring to anxiety, like a sort of perspiration inducing fear. Without, you know, with, with the rebellion of the earth against the man and without, you know, God's living, uh, God, God life-giving presence, um, the humans now have to live out their numbered days in an adversarial world, a place where it's not safe for them anymore. And maybe you can relate with that, you know, that this sort of gnawing, constant dread that there won't be enough, that, that all your work, your hardest, best efforts might not be good enough. It might all come to nothing. You know, what if the crops don't produce enough food? What if the livestock gets sick? What if I get sick, Right? You know, what, what if I can't pay the bills or something happens and I can't work anymore? How do I pay for my college, you know? What about my retirement? You know, if you're, if you're aging and you're, and you're not ready to retire, but you're losing your ability to work, what then? We even have to worry and, and scheme for how we're going to dispose, pay to dispose of our own dead bodies after we're gone. The whole world is living under this curse of scarcity. People against people, nation against nation, the strong crushing the weak to hoard resources to try to safeguard ourselves against this dread that we might not have enough. I know I can relate with that. I mean, at, at our best, Amanda and I still try to control each other sometimes. You know, I pathologically will check the bank account balance or pathologically avoid checking the bank, you know, bank account balance because I don't want to know, you know, how bad it is. The, the joy of my work is, in, you know, often stolen by the force of need on my life. With endless crushing anxiety, will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made? Then, of course, there's death itself. We were made as God's idols in the world, to live forever eating the fruit of his life and now sin has poisoned our bodies. God's life and sin cannot coexist and the body can't keep living without the life of God. And so our bodies are made fragile by sin. 
we are no longer safe in God's presence. That's why the humans had to be, you know, expelled from the garden. It was, it was a punishment, yes, but it was probably more about their own safety. To be, you know, to, when sin is entered into God's presence, that sin cannot survive, right? The entire rest of the Bible, without exception, is the story of God making a way for his people to be back in his presence safely without being destroyed. We were made for intimate, unguarded, naked relationship with God and with each other. We were, we were made to rule this world with love and justice, but because of sin, our relationship with God and with each other is fractured and broken. And our rule in this world is rendered ineffective by our separation from God. We are no longer rulers. We are now slaves to sin and death. And in the vacuum of power created by our abdication, Satan has stepped in to rule the kingdoms of the world that we created instead of God's kingdom. Of course, all that, you know, um, was changed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. We can now be in, the, in God's presence again safely because of Jesus. But I, w- I want to just linger here in our loss for a moment. Think about the, the way that, the, the, that you feel the fall in your life. Have you lost somebody? Are you losing somebody? You know, it, are, you, are you living in a body that's crumbling around you and you can't do anything about it? Do you live in fear? Do you live with constant anxiety just gnawing at you? You know, are, are you aging and approaching, you know, retirement and you're, and you're not ready? You don't know what to do. You don't know how your needs are going to be met. Are you caught in an endless cycle of sin that's motivated by shame and you run to the sin to alleviate your shame, but it brings more shame and drives you to sin again and brings more shame and drives you to sin again. All of this is what we've lost, but it's what we stand to regain in Jesus. This is not how things were supposed to be. Like death feels wrong, because it is wrong. Like we try to rationalize it and think, you know, death is just a part of life and we sing songs about the circle of life and this and that. People have been living and dying for thousands of years. It still feels wrong because it's wrong. We were not supposed to die. That's not what God meant for us. We have all together been subjected to this by the will of Adam. But because of the will of Jesus, everything is being made new. And that starts now. In this life, the moment that you say, God, you are my king, I'm done ruling myself, that new life starts now. And Amanda's going to be talking more about that in the coming weeks, so be sure and come back for that. But for now, I want to just, I want to just kind of linger in that place of loss for a moment. So if you want to close your eyes, let's, let's pray together. Lord, would you create in us a longing for all of this to be made right? Lord, let the wrongness of this weigh on our hearts in such a way that we long for it to be made right all the more. Would you repair your fractured image in us a little more today, Lord, while we wait for for you to make us new? Lord, make us once again into conduits of your life into the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to leave you with a a verse to ponder as we kind of continue uh, in worship and 
in prayer. This is from Romans 8, um, starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hopes that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption or decay into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. 